came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves, radio waves. She sees radio waves, radio waves. Astrophys brings in news, arrays and dishes give different views. Are you confused? Radio waves, radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, she sees radio waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien. Today is Thursday the 10th of October 2019. And we're going to start each episode with a community service announcement and a reminder that, yes, Virginia, we have a climate crisis on our hands. See what you can do to help. Each fortnight, we speak with a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy, optical astronomy, space science, or particle physics. Our fabulous featured guest today is Dr. Ivo Zeitensaal who is a future fellow in the School of Science at the University of New South Wales in Canberra, and he's developed an amazing new technique for visualising supernova using supernova remnant tomography. And then we'll welcome Dr Ian Astroblog Musgrave for our regular observational and astrophotography session, What's Up Doc? And we'll finish up as usual with our Astrophys News Highlights. From this golden age of astronomy, space science and particle physics. So let's zoom up to Canberra now to speak with Evo. Hello Evo. Hello Brandon. I was recently alerted to an exciting new paper in Physical Review Letters and it's also written up in Physics Today, and I did some follow-up. And so today we're very fortunate to be speaking with lead author, Dr. Ivo Seitenzal, who has developed a new technique for visualising supernova remnants using supernova remnant tomography. There's also a cool commentary article in Physics magazine. Thank you for speaking with us, Ivo. Uh, Thank you for the introduction, Brendan. It's my pleasure to be a guest for your podcast today. Excellent. So before we talk about your supernova work and optical tomography, can you tell us where you grew up, please, Ivo, and tell us how you became interested in science and space in the first place? Yeah, Brendan, I was actually born in Düsseldorf in Germany, and I grew up in Bad Nauheim, a small town just north of Frankfurt. Unless you're a diehard Elvis Presley fan, you've probably never heard of it, but uh, Elvis lived in Bad Nauheim from 1958 to 1960 when he was serving the U.S. Army. He was stationed in the Ray Barracks in the uh, nearby town of Friedberg. Already as a young child, I basically had a knack for mathematics and science, uh, so the analytic work just came relatively easy to me. For example, I remember sitting under the kitchen table as about a, maybe a five or six-year-old, and I was helping my sister with her math homework. <laughs> And uh, when I was 14, I opted out of the religious studies program in school. But, of course, they had to keep me supervised. And so they made me sit in on an upper-level math class. And instead of dozing off, I decided 
to not be bored. And so I just paid attention and I ended up solving all the problems that the older kids couldn't. And so choosing a career in physics for me, in some ways it was the path of least resistance. So I'm actually inherently uh, pretty lazy. So I ended up picking something that I noticed that I was actually good at, that I like doing, but also something that I could excel at without, you know, putting in too much effort, actually. <laughs> Very good. So tell us a little bit about those school days and your early ambitions. And did those early ambitions change? Yes, yeah, so my school years, well, I was good at math and all that, but you know, I really like sports. And so, but I quickly realized I probably wouldn't make it as a professional basketball star. And so I was initially thinking perhaps about a career at the stock market, like being a stockbroker, you know, something similar. But then in the upper levels in school, I elected mathematics and physics for my majors. And again, I mean, I like doing it, but not necessarily because I love the topic so much, but I picked them because I was good at them and I got really good grades getting high marks and I didn't have to laboriously write pages and pages of essays. So after I graduated from school, I actually moved to Hamburg for one year. And at the time in Germany, there was still the draft. So, but I was a a conscientious objector to serving in the military with a weapon. And so I was doing my in lieu of military community service time at the German Siemens mission up in Hamburg. And I was working shifts and night shifts and doing the long night shifts. I had a lot of time to read and, and also watch TV. And so Carl Sagan's Cosmos series really inspired me to pursue science. It was only during that year in Hamburg that I made the decision to actually try to study a hard science abroad. And uh, I, I still had to take standardized tests, like the SAT test and English tests. By the time I actually completed everything that most application uh, required, most deadlines had long passed, but the University of Arizona was one of the few universities uh, that interested me with a very late application deadline, I think 15th of April. And so I ended up applying to only this one university actually, uh, but I was lucky enough to accept it with a full tuition and fee waiver. And initially I was an undeclared major. I I considered meteorology, oceanography and astronomy. But I ended up signing up for a double major in astronomy and physics simply because the research in the astronomy department at the University of Arizona, it, it had the best reputation. And so I went with the one that I thought gave me the best career outlook. Fantastic, Evo. So after that successful school career, you completed your undergrad studies at the University of Arizona. Then you were admitted to graduate school for your PhD at the University of Chicago. How did you enjoy that move from Arizona up to Illinois? Right, so the, the move from Tucson to Chicago, basically from undergraduate to graduate studies, it was challenging, uh, to be honest. I mean, I basically went from being one of the top students in my class to being an average performer at best. Right? The University of Chicago physics program is very highly regarded. It attracts a lot of talent. And uh, it took some adjusting you know, to just being one of many, basically. Uh. Also, finding an advisor was stressful for me. I was admitted basically without a PhD advisor. I had to teach at first, uh, but then eventually, more or less by coincidence, I ended up in uh, Professor Jim Turin's office. And we talked about our interests. When I told him that I was German, 
and interested in nuclear astrophysics, he was basically sold. And he offered me a research position on the spot. And I told him that sounded great, but I still had to take one more year of upper level classes before I could really delve into the research. And I still remember uh, the exact words of his reply. He said, you can use me like a credit card, charge me now and pay me back later. <laughs> Fantastic. So then it's back to Germany and Gaching near Munich to the Max Planck Institute for Astrophysics for your postdoctoral work and staying on there for some time as a visiting scientist. Yeah, it was great to be back in Germany. I, I uh, spent 10 years in the US for undergrad and grad school. But, you know, when I started my undergraduate studies in astronomy, I actually had the goal to one day be a researcher at the Max Planck Institute for Astrophysics. It's sort of the, the top place to be in Germany. I actually got an offer. And also Munich, of course, is a, is a great town to live in. You know, there's the mountains, the beer, Oktoberfest. It's a beautiful and exciting city. And I also met my wife there. And so I look back very fondly at the city, the institute, the research. It was fantastic five years, actually. Sounds terrific. And then six years ago, you and Ashley made the big move down under to Canberra in Australia, where you were a SkyMapper Research Fellow at the Research School of Astronomy and Astrophysics, Mount Stromlo Observatory, and an Associate Investigator with Castro. And now you're a future fellow in the School of Science at the University of New South Wales in Canberra. How's life in Canberra? Yeah, that's all correct. Uh, but, um, you know, life in Canberra is awesome. I, I really like it. I think it's highly underrated. You got clean air, no traffic jams, lots of cultural offers, like museums and the like. And there's a lot of beautiful wildlife uh, and nature to explore. Parrots, cockatoos, kangaroos, wallabies, wombats, platypuses, sugar gliders, all these strange animals. that, And they're very unfamiliar uh, to me coming from Europe. Great weather, too. Yeah, Canberra offers a great lifestyle, especially for young families. Very good. And the nice thing about Canberra is not all the animals there want to kill you. Yeah, some of them do, uh, not all of them. Uh, probably the most dangerous are actually the kangaroos because you hit them with your car, as we've done before. Oh, yes, an angry kangaroo is a thing to behold. Now, that's the background, Evo. So let's do science now and go back to your PhD on the energetics, initiation of detonations and nucleosynthesis of type 1A supernova in the gravitationally confined detonation model. Now, a couple of basic questions here. What elements are created when supernovas explode? And do we know what usually causes the detonation to initiate? The types of supernovae I specialize in are thermonuclear, or so-called type 1A supernovae. They mostly produce iron peak elements, or what we call iron peak elements. So that would be elements like iron, nickel, manganese, chromium, cobalt. So elements in the periodic table around iron. And intermediate mass elements, such as silicon or sulfur. And the question about how the nuclear fusion runaway starts, it's still a matter of active research. So it can be triggered, for example, by shocks that emerge when two white dwarfs violently merge. 
for example. So these two whiteboards smash into each other, can trigger detonation. Uh, another idea is based on this really strange property of the equation of state for white dwarf matter. So if you add mass to a white dwarf star, it does not get bigger, it shrinks. Uh, this is unlike any material uh, we know on Earth, right? Material we're used to will typically occupy a larger volume if you take more of it. Like adding another pile of rocks to a pile of rocks will make a pile that's twice as large. Yep. But a white dwarf is different, right? Adding mass to it will make it smaller, it makes it more compact. This means the density has to increase. If we add enough mass to white dwarf, it shrinks. It shrinks so much in size that the density gets so large that this high density then eventually triggers the nuclear fusion of carbon. And this can eventually build up to nuclear runaway fusion reaction that explodes a star on a time scale of about one second. Cool. Okay, thanks for that. Now, before we talk about your tomography breakthrough, I saw in your latest paper that you're suggesting that one of the young supernova remnants you looked at closely in the Large Magellanic Cloud was triggered when its mass was below the Chandrasekhar mass. How can you determine the mass of a supernova progenitor by looking at the remnants? That's a very good question, Brendan. Maybe a bit more background first. So when a supernova explodes into space, right, it basically flings material, and this material we call the ejecta, into all directions at very high velocity into the surrounding interstellar medium. This supersonically expanding ejecta, it moves at uh, tens of percent of the speed of light. It drives a shock wave called the forward shock into the interstellar medium. The interstellar medium is very low density, but, it, but it's by no means a perfect vacuum. So the forward shock, with time, it sweeps up mass, the low density interstellar gas. As the forward shock sweeps up mass, it slows down by conservation of uh, momentum. And as a further back reaction to the swept up gas, uh, a reverse shock forms, uh, and the reverse shock is moving into the ejecta. So how quickly the reverse shock forms and moves into the ejecta basically depends on the amount of mass swept up relative to the ejecta mass. And so this is basically, in a nutshell, how the time evolution of the forward and reverse shock are sensitive to the ejecta mass. That's cool. So now integrated field spectrographs provided the data for your current research. Can you tell us about these sensitive instruments and what their data tells you? Yeah, so some people may be familiar with uh, astronomical imaging that is taking a picture through a filter that only lets in light in a certain restricted wavelength range. Yep. Imaging allows us to take sharp pictures of extended objects. It only gives us very crude information, however, about the energy distribution of the radiation. The energy distribution can be measured by spectroscopy that breaks the light into its wavelength components. Right? Traditionally, this was done by passing the light, fell through a narrow slit, through a prism or a grating, and we would get the spectrum along this one-dimensional slit. Are you with me still? Yep. So modern integral field spectrographs, now basically they're combining imaging and spectroscopy well, into imaging spectroscopy, so to speak, the best of both worlds. 
Right? One type of these instruments are, are image slicers. So they're basically an array of side-by-side -side slits. And so the multi-unit spectroscopic explorer, MUSE, on unit telescope four at Paranal in Chile, is one of these instruments. And it gives us a spectrum for each of the over 100,000 spaxels in the, in the square area on sky with a one square augmented field of view. So it's basically an image where every pixel is not just a scalar number, but every pixel is a spectrum. So you have over 100,000 spectra uh, covering an area in the sky in, in one, one shot. And so it, it contains much more information than an image. Okay, so here on Earth in hospitals, we put patients' bodies in PET scanners, but you're applying tomography to bodies of supernova remnants that are hundreds of thousands of light years away. Now, you've already put our propeller hats right on. Let's keep going. Can you tell us how you manage your data and how your optical tomography technique works to visualize those different layers of elements in supernova remnants? To okay. understand how we visualize the layers, we need to understand how the emission mechanism works. So I already told you about the reverse shock that is being driven into the ejecta. Yep. The electrons and ions so ions are partially ionized atoms, they get heated by the shock. Uh, the densities are so low, however, that collisions between these particles are very rare. So the ionization of the atoms is not in equilibrium with the iron temperature. And in fact, the iron temperature is not even in equilibrium with the electron temperature. Collisions between, say, a partially ionized iron atom and an electron will tend to ionize the iron atom further. That is, it'll strip more electrons off the atom. Since the density is so low and collisions are so rarely happening, this takes time. Uh, ejecta that was very recently shocked by the reverse shock, let's say 100 years ago, this ejecta will have a relatively low ionization state for the sake of definiteness, let's say, eight times ionized iron. And material that was shocked a longer time ago, let's say 250 years ago, it had time to ionize further to, let's say, 13 times ionized iron, so iron missing 13 electrons. Although the shocked iron has a temperature of over 10 million degrees Kelvin, it can still op emit optical light and emission lines via low-lying atomic transitions that are excited by collisions. Yep. So light emitted from the eight times ionized iron atom will therefore be found closer to the current position of the reverse shock and light emitted from the 13 times ionized iron will be found further away at larger radii. And so this is how we get this onion-like structure of low ionization states closer to the shock further in and high ionization states further out. And so this is how we can uh, visualize different depths of layers of the supernova. And this is why we call it a tomography because we can use radiation to probe different layers of the ejecta. And the line profiles, or the width of the lines, they then carry information about the reverse shock speed. At the time in the past, when the iron ion that we see in emission today was shocked. That is sensational. And our listeners can see some of your images from your paper at tinyearl.com forward slash SNRTOM. And I'll repeat that at the end of the episode. So there's 
two really big things emerging from your paper. Let's look first at what this means for our understanding of how supernovas are triggered. Are you and your colleagues looking for more confirmed examples of sub-Chandrasankar supernovas? And what happens next with this new knowledge about type 1A supernovas? Will new supernova 1A models have to be developed now? So we're still in the infancy, um, the very early stages of, the, of this new field of supernova remnant tomography. And uh, we're still taking basically an inventory. And our immediate next goal is to find you know, this type of optical emission from the shock dejector in, in, the, in the famous supernova remnants in our own galaxy. So the supernova remnant of Tycho's supernova from 1572 and the Kepler supernova from the supernova that exploded in 1604. Uh, these are both known to be type 1As, and it's still debated there even what, what masses uh, they were, although they're the best observed and documented uh, historical uh, supernovae in recent times, type 1A supernovae. We would also like to find emission lines of other elements, not just iron and sulfur, but for example, calcium, silicon, or nickel, so that we can derive more information about the chemical abundances and the chemical stratification in the ejecta, so how the elements are layered. Theoretical implications um, really have to be worked out uh, to a large degree. Uh, so we've identified a new window, a new way to, to peek into these supernova remnants, into the ejecta, into the nucleosynthesis produced uh, by the supernova explosions. And we haven't really, to the full extent, really worked out what exactly we can learn. It's, it's a very new window, a uh, new way of looking at these objects, and um, we're still exploring uh, all the implications. That is so exciting. Now, the other thing, of course, is your tomography application itself now. You and your colleagues have applied it to supernova research and you mentioned earlier, you mentioned reverse shock speeds. For the first time, these have been observed. How else do you think your tomography techniques might be applied to supernova or to other research? Yeah, so like I um, explained earlier, the reverse shock forms as a reaction to the mass that is swept up by the forward shock. In physics, every, every action has a reaction. And so the reverse shock is driven into the ejecta and the widths uh, of the emission lines, uh, they basically capture or, or carry information about the speed at which the shock moves into the ejecta. And we can measure this for the first time now because X-ray telescopes that have the capability to detect reverse shock ejecta at X-ray temperatures, have, these X-ray telescopes don't have the required energy resolution to measure the line widths and, and give us this information on, on the shock speed. Uh, so this is something new we bring to the table here, and, and this is one of the reasons why we find it exciting. We have new constraints on the shock speeds for these supernovae. That is very exciting, and it sounds like there's a lot more to come out of it. Now, 
Back to you. You're the father of three children and you're doing incredible research. How do you manage to juggle family life and your work as an astrophysicist? Yeah, I'm glad you're bringing this up, Brendan. I try to have a healthy work-life balance and I'm lucky in that I have a very supportive partner. But my wife's also a professional career astronomer and both of our extended families are overseas in Europe and in North America. So we, we don't get much help from, from that perspective. It's incredibly uh, difficult at times to juggle family life, career, and you know, a bit of me time as well. So uh, compromises have to be made. Uh, research, for example, is not moving forward as quickly as I would like to. I don't do nearly as much exercise as I would like to. I don't read as much as I want to. And I don't spend as much quality time with my kids as I want to. And, you know, we have to put them in after-school care and daycare some days of the week. At times, I have to decline to write talks, conferences, or extended meetings um, simply because I don't want to be away for three weeks at a time. Yes, and as we speak, Ashley's over at a conference in Armenia. Yeah, she just got back, actually. Uh, very lucky, actually, that our kids, they, they don't get sick very much. Although my middle child fell hand through a glass door uh, just the other day. Luckily, he didn't injure himself too badly. But with three uh, kids in the household, a lot of things happen. Yes, and there's always worries. Well, thank you very much, Evo. Now, the microphone is all yours. You have the opportunity to give us your favorite rant or rave about one of the challenges that we face in science or science denialism or science career paths or your passion for research or our quest for new knowledge that you're demonstrating. The microphone is all yours. Uh, thanks, Bren. I'm a bit <laughs> put on the spot now, but it's good to be definitely critical and question things. But I also believe we should go back to sort of trusting the experts a bit more again, you know, for example, uh, and especially on environmental topics like climate change or health topics like immunizations, no passenger on a plane would question the pilot's decision to yaw the plane on a crosswind landing, right? But somehow the same doesn't apply to many people when it comes to believing your health organization about vaccinations. And things like measles are on the rise again, and they don't, it doesn't have to be that way, right? Yes, you know, pharmaceutical companies want to make money. Yep. But homeopathy pill-producing companies only want to make money too. So there's this double standard. You know, there's a blind trusting the advocates for homeopathy <laughs> that are basically pseudoscience and, you know, uh, invented by a German apothecary hundreds of years ago without any basis, any real basis for science. And, and, and that you trust. But the research-based... Uh, you know, medicine, people often like to just see very skeptical, right? It's good to be skeptical, but, uh, you know, be skeptical of the alternatives as well. You know, why do you trust one and not the other? At least pharmaceutical companies are regulated. So I'm, I guess my advice is, you know, do your research and, and don't confuse homeopathy with natural medicine, which I think is a good thing, right? One is natural medicine, you know, that there's actually ingredients there that work, active ingredients, and homeopathy, by definition, has no active ingredients. Yes. 
I probably uh, made a lot of enemies just now. <laughs> but No, that's good. I'm right with you. And my observation is that if homeopathy worked as it's supposed to, then drinking a glass of seawater, which ultimately has everything dissolved in it to an infinite degree, if a glass of seawater would cure every <laughs> illness on the planet. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Okay, let's keep going. Thanks, Evo. Is there anything else we should watch out for in the near future? What are you keeping your eye on? Well, I hear uh, there'll be an article in Scientific American coming out about supernova tomography later this year. And so that's certainly something I'm keeping an eye out for. And the listeners may also want to check it out. Um, I also wrote a little piece on why manganese is my favorite element. And this is part of the stories from the periodic table uh, competition for the 150-year anniversary of the uh, invention of the periodic table. And you can see my and other contributions at the Royal Australian Chemical Institute uh, homepage, where you can also vote for your favorite. Fantastic. We'll definitely keep our eye on that and watch out for scientific American tomography. Now, thank you so much, Dr. Evo Seitenzal. On behalf of all of our listeners, it's been really fabulous speaking with you. Thank you especially for your time and your busy schedule. And we'll encourage all listeners to check out the images, as we mentioned earlier, and a summary of the paper at tinyearl.com forward slash SNRTOM. And that's all lowercase and all one word. And you can follow the news on optical tomography because if it's like any other breakthrough in research methodology, it's going to lead to some very interesting and unexpected understandings of our cosmos. Congratulations and thank you, Evo. Thank you, Brendan. It was truly an honor to be on your show and thank you for giving me time to talk about my research. Thank you, Evo. Goodbye, now. Yep, bye. Now we cross to Adelaide to speak with Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave and find out what's up, Doc. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. Great to be speaking with you again, Ian. Can you tell us what's up in the sky for the next two weeks? Okay, what's up in the sky in the next two weeks? The thing we should be keeping an eye on is the pair of Venus and Mercury. Mercury is now in the twilight and is readily visible at half an hour after sunset. And during the coming fortnight, it climbs higher and higher eventually becoming visible an hour after sunset quite easily. In fact, this is the best time to see Mercury in the southern hemisphere for the entire year. Venus is still a little bit low, but by the end of the first week, it will be quite obvious in the twilight. By the end of the second week, it will be visible an hour after sunset. So that's our treat for the coming fortnight, seeing Venus and Mercury becoming more and more prominent. Jupiter and Saturn are still quite easily visible. For at least the beginning of this fortnight, Jupiter is still the brightest object in the sky apart from the moon. At the beginning of the fortnight, at the little twilight, 
hour sunset, you'll see the lineup of Mercury, Antares, Jupiter, Saturn, and the Moon in the early evening sky, which will be quite beautiful. By the middle of the week, the Moon will be moving into the morning sky, so you'll just have the four planets lining up, which will look uh, very, very nice indeed. In the morning, of course, we're getting the constellation of Orion is rising higher. In Greek mythology, Scorpius and Orion are chasing, the Hunter and the Scorpion are chasing each other around the sky. So as uh, Scorpius sets, Orion starts to rise in the, uh, in the evening sky. And so Orion is, is becoming more prominent in the morning sky. And at the 24th, is the peak of the Orion and Meteor Shower. Now, the Orion and Meteor Shower is a very spectacular one, but it is rather nice. You can rely on uh, roughly about 20 meteors per hour. Uh, however, this year, the last quarter moon is going to be quite close to the radius of the Orion and uh, Meteor Shower, which is just below Betelgeuse in the constellation of Orion. So you may not see very much of interest, but if you are getting up early in the morning, it would be worthwhile to pop out and have a look and, and see what's going on. Very good. Do you have a tangent for us for this episode, Ian? Yes. While we're watching the waxing moon, you may want to consider that the moon was described as being a green cheese. Now, green, uh, a green cheese is not actually a cheese that is green. A green cheese, unlike cheese, still has the bloom of mould on it. So it actually so a real cheese that is green is actually a white disc. And that's uh, so, uh, and the appearance of these uh, yet unlike cheeses and the moon suggested that the moon was a big bird colored green uh, cheese. But the question arises, how much milk would you need to make the moon? It turns out to be quite a lot. But if you took all the milk from all the cows in the world, it would take something like 750 million years to generate enough cheese <laughs> make a sphere of cheese the size of the moon. Now, this presupposes a number of things. Uh, the first one is, of course, that um, you could uh, store that, that amount of cheese for that amount of time in order to stick it all together into a giant uh, orbital cheese. And also, it depends on the kind of cheese. Obviously, soft cheeses would compress under their own gravity far more than a hard cheese. And, and the degree of gravity uh, compression would be a factor here. So uh, let's assume that it was a hard cheese, like uh, Jarlsberg, where you've got rid of most of the moisture, then it'll probably, again, it's, it's going to take something around 750 million years with all of the production in the world to make a, make a moon of cheese, which is quite sobering when you think about it, especially since the moon seems to have formed about four and a half billion years ago, or 4.5 billion years ago, which was fairly soon after the formation of the solar system, but around about 4.6 billion years. So it, compared to the amount of time it took to make the moon by whatever process the moon was made, and we think the process by which the moon was made was having a large decimal uh, collide with uh, Earth, uh, blasting a chunk of Earth into into orbit uh, mixed up with the remnants of the impactor, then a melting, consolidating into a moon-sized object. And that would take something on the order of... We're thinking the moon itself probably only took a few million years to consolidate out of that debris. 
down the, the rubble left over from the powdering impact. It's not really that different, is it? I'm glad you didn't try and do that calculation using Swiss cheese and taking the holes into account. Fantastic, Ian. I think I can say with absolute confidence that that is the cheesiest tangent you've ever done. <laughs> it was inspired uh, by the fact, of course, uh, this week is the beginning of International uh, Astronomy Week, which started off with the moon, the International Observe the Moon Night. International Astronomy Week will be uh, pretty much half over by the time it goes there. Unfortunately, on the uh, International Observer Moon Night, it was completely crowded out. And the night after the International Observer Moon Night, which is tonight, is also completely crowded out. So, uh, for the International Observer Moon Night, um, I watched TV instead. And some cheery news for local Australian observers. You've just missed the Starfest up at Coonabarabran and at Siding Spring. And you've also just missed the Radio Astronomy School up at the ATCA at Narrabri. So you've just missed a couple of things. You can go to Narrabri in another two years, and you can go up to Siding Spring in October for Starfest every year. Yeah. I, I, I keep on saying I'm going to Starfest, I'm going to Starfest, and something always turns up, which I mean, I can't go. So... Uh... Hopefully, hopefully next year I'll be able to go up to Starfest. I'm really looking forward to going to one of those. Excellent. I might arrange to go at the same time as you, Ian. Well, thank you very much, Ian Astroblog Musgrave. No it's, it's been fantastic speaking with you again. It's always a pleasure to speak with you, Brendan, especially if you can convince some people in the world to look up and enjoy the sky. Excellent. Thanks, mate. Good night, Ian. Good night, Brendan. And here is the Astrophys News. First up, NASA's Mars InSight lander has for the first time detected Mars quakes. And looking at the data, those quakes can be more violent than the earthquakes we have here on Earth. Have a listen to this.
can probably also pick up some squeaks and groans from the robotic arm on the InSight lander. Now this next article is via Astronomy and Astrophysics Journal 2019 by Espritsen et al. A cosmic collider was the ice cube neutrino generated in a precessing jet-jet interaction. Now this is just beautiful science. On July the 12th, 2018, the ice cube collaboration announced the detection of the first high-energy neutrino. This is a single neutrino, which could be tracked back to its distant cosmic origin. And while the origin of neutrinos has been suspected for quite some time, this was the first neutrino from outer space whose origin could be confirmed. And the home of this neutrino is an AGN, an active galactic nucleus, a galaxy with a supermassive black hole as its central engine. They've concluded from their studies that this neutrino was produced by a collision of different aged jets emanating from around the black hole. Just awesome. The winners of the 2018 Nobel Prizes for Physics have just been announced and three old white blokes were indeed very deservedly awarded with lots of money for their research over a lifetime and congratulations to them. But we again need to point out the disparity in the Nobel Prizes where women just aren't represented at all. So while all our glaciers are melting, our progress towards equality is glacial. And we'll finish up with a great message from a listener. And this listener, Dr. Jim Palfreyman, happens to be the person who we're interviewing for the next episode. And this is what he says in his email to me. Hi, Brendan. I heard you complain a bit about why Australia's season dates are different to the rest of the world. I don't know the history, but I've heard many others grizzle. But we have it right. Consider summer. The solstice is around December 22. This means the sun is at its most southern declination and highest in the sky at noon on that date. Why start summer at the peak? That makes no sense. At first glance, it might make sense to have the solstice in the middle of summer, e.g. summer goes from, say, November 1 to January 31. But that doesn't work either because the weather doesn't actually start to warm instantly as the sun gets higher. There's a delay. And if you look at when temperatures actually start to rise, it seems to be around the start of December. So next time you notice an Australian season change date, notice how close the weather follows it. The first of the month's dates are also much easier for the general public to follow. So we have it right, and the rest of the world are wrong. Jim. Thanks, Jim. Beautifully argued. Looking forward to your next episode for Astrophys, when we'll be hearing about the glitch in the Vila Pulsar.
and how Jim's PhD thesis led to a new understanding of the internal structures of pulsars. We'll see you in two weeks. Radio Wave.